During World War II, the Japanese took control of a particular island in the Philippines called Bataan, if you know the history. 75,000 Filipino and American troops were forced to make a deadly 65-mile march to prison camps, and an estimated 17,000 men died during and after the infamous Bataan Death March. Now, if you go to Bataan today, you will see that they have built a 95-meter-high cross atop of a mountain to memorialize the Bataan Death March. Now, they also put an elevator inside the cross so visitors can go to the top and see breathtaking scenery overlooking several islands and cities that were once abandoned and desolated but are now free and beautiful. The blood of the prisoners of war was waged and spilled for the freedom of the Filipino people. And beloved, so is our freedom from the slave market of sin as the precious blood of Jesus Christ was spilled for us on the cross. And now, not only do we ascend the mountain of the Lord, but by setting our eyes on Christ and His cross, it becomes a lens how we see everything else. C.S. Lewis was on point when he said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. And so let us believe in Jesus Christ and behold him supreme in our lives. It is the one thing that determines everything else. The disciples, Peter, James, and John, struggled with unbelief which led to their misapplication of God's miracle and misapplications of God's word. And so I want to call us all this, this evening to three concrete actions on how our right belief about our Christ leads to beholding him supreme in our lives. There are three points for us. Number one, let us look to Christ in all his glory. The key word for the kids is look. The second point is we listen to Christ, the beloved Son of God. We see that in verses 5 to 8. And the key word for the kids is listen. And the third point, we live for Christ, or we live as people for whom Christ suffered, died, and rose from the dead, verses 9 to 13. The key word is live. Look, listen, and live. Let us look at the first point. We look to Jesus Christ in all his glory. Mark chapter 9, verses 2 to 3 tells us, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Now that's the ESV. We will be reading from ESV and NKJB or NASB. Now, the transfiguration happened after six days after Jesus in chapter 8 asked the disciples, Who do people say that I am? And Peter answered probably one of the best Christological confessions. He said, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
Now, the connection between Peter's confession and Jesus' transfiguration was significant. You see, in the Bible, God reveals himself to man through word and deed. The same is true in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Miracles are not an end in themselves. They serve to authenticate the words of Christ. The transfiguration was the deed, the miracle, that vindicated the prophetic words, not of Peter, but of Jesus in the previous chapter when he prophesied about his suffering, death, and resurrection. But you see, brothers and sisters in Christ, the transfiguration is unlike any other miracles. The miracle happened to Jesus himself. And that is significant, and we will see that in a while. It is also significant to note that the transfiguration was recorded, was recorded in the first three gospel accounts. We can, we can ask what happened to Jesus. You know, what happened to Jesus on that mountain tells Jewish and Gentile readers an important truth about who Christ is, right? But what about the gospel account of John? He did not record the transfiguration. Our short answer is that John's gospel account was actually an exposition of what the transfiguration implies. And we will, again, see that in, uh, uh, later. Now, there is no doubt that Jesus was in the state of glory when he was transfigured on that mountain before his disciples. This tells us several things. First, the suffering and death of Jesus are from above, not below. The book of Mark is about Christ's power and authority over all creation. That's why it's unique. It's a power-packed account of the life of Christ. And the transfiguration of Jesus was a statement of his authority. And yes, even over his sufferings and death. Now, the second implication of this miracle is that his suffering and death are not the end of his work as the Christ. His transfiguration looks forward to his exaltation in his glorious resurrection, which the transfiguration typifies. Right? The transfiguration happened to Jesus himself, and it looks forward to the resurrection, the greatest miracle that happened to Jesus himself. Now, the third implication of this miracle is that Christ fulfills the scriptures. He is the center and the grand story of God's redemptive plan. He was the Messiah that the prophets talked and prophesied about. Which brings us to verse 4. Look at verse 4. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Now, you've heard this, but let me reiterate it again. If you are a real estate agent, you should know that there are three important things. It's a selling point, right? Location, location, location. Now, let me use a Dutch illustration, if you will. Now, after driving around for a puppet supply in the Midwest, you know, North Michigan, I've filled puppet supply in Ellsworth, Michigan. We've been to Des Moines and to Wisconsin and Minneapolis. 
my middle child started to love farm life. And we've been staying around uh, Dutch farmers, and we love it. And one time, she told us that she wanted to marry a Dutch husband. And I know that location is important, so I told her, you are going to Dort. And you will marry a guy in the summer of your junior year. Now, in the Bible, brothers and sisters, location is a very important question. Always ask the question whenever you read the Bible, the location of Christ's transfiguration is on the mountain. That's first. Now, the theme of mountains in the Bible is essential. Right? In our call to worship earlier, I said that God summons us now to ascend Mount Zion, the mountain of the Lord. Whenever we read God's law, it reminds us of another mountain, right? Mount Sinai. We are condemned before Mount Sinai. But Christ, in a sense, ascended that mountain, received upon himself the requirement of the law. He lived the life we cannot live and died the death we should have died. So by being united with him, we can now ascend the mountain of the Lord. Right? Moses and Elijah, in verse 4, were also mountain guys. They received God's word on Mount Sinai. Moses and Elijah also had a glimpse of God's glory on Mount Sinai. Right? And now, they appeared with Jesus on the mountain of transfiguration. These parallels the disciples these parallels the disciples hearing God's word on that mountain in verse 7 and having a glimpse of the God-man Jesus in the state of glory. We know that Moses and Elijah were not mere apparitions in this account because it says in the text they were talking with Jesus. Now, Mark did not tell us what they talked about, but Dr. and the historian Luke did. They talked about the departure. Literally, the word was, that was used, Christ's exodus toward his death. In Luke chapter 9, verse 31, which he will accomplish at Jerusalem, which is on another mountain. They talked about the meta-narrative, the grand story of God's redemptive plan, the crucifixion of Christ. The transfiguration of Jesus in the presence of Elijah, Moses, and even before his disciples, clearly shows the continuity of God's redemptive plan from the gracious old covenant into the more gracious and even more glorious new covenant through Jesus who is the Christ, from Mount Sinai to Mount Zion, prophesied by the prophets Moses and Elijah, received and will be proclaimed by the apostles, Peter, James, and John. Jesus Christ is the center of human history. And John Calvin is on point when he said, God is comprehended in Christ alone. Beloved congregation, to believe that Jesus is your Christ is of first importance. His supremacy over your life 
is of first importance. To know for sure that Christ lived the life you cannot live and died the death you should have died should give you your greatest joy in your life. Because the joy of our salvation is front and center of our whole being, of the life of the church. And that's what we celebrate every Lord's Day. And that what sustains us and equips us to go out to the world and live out our faith. It is the purpose of our vocation, the goal of our parenting, and our hope in our grief. Looking to Christ as our Messiah is not exclusive to our salvation as sinners, but even in our sanctification as saints. And so we ask the question, who is Christ to me? Who is Christ to you? Who is Christ to your family? Who is Christ to you as a student? As a mother? As a father? As a son or daughter? As an employer or employee? Who is Christ to you determines everything else. Your principles, your philosophy, and purpose. Your integrity at work, your purity, your priorities, your moving out from the city and picking a place, and the number one on your list is a local church that you would go to. It changes our priorities. Now, we visited the Memorial Cross in Bataan a long time ago, and when we were on the top of the hill, this is a true story. A great cloud passed through. Disclaimer, we did not hear a voice during that time. I wish we did. It's, it's going to be a good illustration. But the cross vanished before our eyes. And I told my wife that it will be a good sermon illustration. So here it is. You see, when the author of Hebrews exhorted his congregations to fix their eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of their faith, it implies that their disobedience, their sinfulness, and lukewarmness are not the main issues. They are the consequence of the main issue. And it is their failure to fix their eyes on Jesus. We look to Christ first and foremost. We behold him supreme in our lives, in our parenting in our vocations. But not only that, our second point tells us we listen to Jesus Christ, the beloved Son of God. Looking to Christ and listening to Him go hand in hand. Peter believed that Jesus was the Christ, right? He got his eyes on Jesus. But was he listening? Was it not clear what Jesus said? Mark chapter 8, verse 31 says, if your, your Bibles are open, let me read Mark chapter 8, verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. What part of suffer, die, and rise from the dead was unclear to Peter. 
The sad thing is that no matter how glorious the transfiguration was and how it was clear what Moses, Elijah, and Jesus talked about, Peter, though his eyes were fixed on Jesus, he was not listening. And that is the reason why he had a different interpretation of the transfiguration. You see, Peter believed that Jesus was front and center. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. But he had a different interpretation of the transfiguration. Brothers and sisters in Christ, it is one thing to look to Jesus, but quite another to listen to him. Listen to Peter in verses, four, verses 5 to 6. It says here, Peter said to Jesus, listen to the, to the words of Peter, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. That's verse 5. If Peter had paid attention to the words of Christ in the previous chapter, which was six days ago in this context, I was just preached last Lord's Day. He already forgotten about it. The purpose of this transfiguration would have made sense to him. Christ's transfiguration was looking forward to his redemptive work on the cross and his glorious resurrection, not looking backward into the old ways of the old covenant. But instead, Peter thought of a plan. Aha! That was a good plan. Or was it? I feel the pulpit uh, at uh, Grace URC uh, in Michigan and Pastor Dog told me about this quote. He said, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. Now, Peter's proposal, without a doubt, was well meant. But it was almost laughable. His ignorant response was backward into the old ways. Building a tabernacle. Really. He failed to see that the transfiguration of Jesus Christ looks forward to the new and better way. Jesus, as the Christ, did not need a tabernacle to dwell in because Jesus is the Son of God who tabernacled and dwelt among his people in his incarnation. And to our point earlier about the Gospel of John as the exposition of the implication of Christ's transfiguration, we read this in chapter 1, of John chapter 1, verse 14, and the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the Son from the Father, full, full of grace and truth. Now look at our text, Mark chapter 9, verse 7. Then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. The cloud is Shekinah glory. Shekinah glory in the Old Testament was God tabernacling among his people. It is God visiting his people. And we see here a shadow from the Old Testament being fulfilled in Christ. And beloved congregation, you see, like Peter, in our ignorance of God's word and God's will and God's work, we tend to put up 
man-made tabernacles, if you will. Thinking that doing what we think, feel, and tell ourselves is good is the way to go. Like Peter, we tend to be blinded by our well-meant plans. Right? For our church, for our families, our careers, and our priorities. Our hearts, like Peter, can very well tell us that what we want to do for our children, our church, and our career is good. But is it really Our dilemma, brothers and sisters in Christ, is not to simply know what is good, but ultimately to do the will of God. Our plans may sound good, but unless it is the will of God, it will not prosper. And the Apostle Paul reminds us, the Apostle John reminds us to test the spirits whether they are from God. Listen to Jesus and live accordingly. It is one thing for Peter to confess that Jesus is Christ, but it is another to live by his confession. And the same is true. It is one thing to confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord. It is one thing to lay hold of our beautiful Reformed confessions and catechism. Right? But it is one thing, it's quite another thing to behold him supreme over our lives. Self-serving and man-centered agendas do not have a place in the Christian life and in the life of the church. And the good thing, brothers and sisters, is that God has appointed concrete means whereby we can listen to Christ. Number one, listen to God's word and make diligent use of God's ordinary means of grace as we listen to the preaching of God's word Every Lord's Day. This is unlike anything else what we do every Lord's Day. We are mysteriously being summoned by God to ascend His mountain and listen to His Word. As our, as our confession tells us, right? The Helvetic Confession. Whenever God's Word is preached faithfully, it is as if Christ is preaching to us His very words. So come here every Lord's Day with faith to receive God's preached word. The second thing we can see as means whereby we can listen to Christ is to lay hold of our Reformed tradition, right? It is a helpful fence to protect us from falsehood. It is a helpful fence to protect our kids from the world because whether we like it or not, the world will catechize our children. Another means that God gives us, this is a wonderful concrete means that we should maximize. The third thing is that talk to your elders. Talk to your pastor. They are Christ's under-shepherds. They are not just administrative work. They are ministerial work. Ask them questions, hard questions. Bother them. Send them an email. Call call them. Ask them questions. God speaks through your godly office bearers. If you are planning to get married or change careers, 
if you have marital issues, have questions about your faith, or are discouraged and distressed, talk to your elders. And number four, let us catechize our children. Catechize them. Beloved congregation, look to Jesus Christ. Listen to him. And third point, live accordingly. We live as people for whom Christ suffered and rose from the dead. Verses 9 to 13 tells us that as Jesus and the three disciples descended from the mountain, the topic of Christ's suffering and resurrection were brought up. Right? And one familiar theme in the book of Mark, which is mentioned at least ten times, is how he would not want the disciples or other people and even demons to speak about him. Right? Only this time he told the three disciples when would be the right time to speak about him. Verse 9 says, As they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. The resurrection of Christ is the vindication of everything he taught about himself and everything he has done, especially his death on the cross. But look at verse 10. The disciples seem not to understand what Christ meant about his resurrection from the dead. Now, these guys have a knowledge and believe, they believe in the resurrection of the dead. Right? We know that. But this murmuring in verse 10 is probably because they still did not want to think that Jesus, the Messiah, should die. So how can there be a resurrection from the dead if Jesus should not die? In verse 10, so they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean we see that there was still an unbelief in their hearts about what they just witnessed and heard, right? They just witnessed this beautiful miracle, the transfiguration. They just heard the message that was talked about by Elijah, Moses, and Jesus. There was still an unbelief in their hearts. Listen to their question in verse 11. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first, Elijah must come. Now, that sounds like an innocent question. But remember, there is always an assumption in every question. Right? For example, last Christmas, when my wife asked me a question, will having a crock pot help me cook Filipino dishes easier? I know that she wants one. Right? She wants one of those efficient crockpots. And so there was an assumption behind the question. And the question is, what was the assumption of the disciples when they asked the question? And the question was, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? They know their Bibles. They were referring to the prophecy of Malachi, which is always understood to refer to the day of glory, the day of the Lord. Right? And the day of the Lord is supposed to be glorious, contrary to the idea of Jesus dying. Is it possible that they ask the question because they still cannot accept the fact 
that Jesus needs to suffer and die? And the answer is yes. There was a doubt in them, an unbelief, even after witnessing a glorious miracle of the transfiguration. And so we ask the question, did Peter's plan make more sense to them than the plan of God? Yes. Did Peter think that by putting up tabernacles, one for Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah, Jesus would not need to die? And that it would be the day of glory that Malachi prophesied about? Elijah was already there, right? Peter must have thought that if people went up to that mountain and see Jesus with Elijah and Moses dwelling in their glittering tabernacles, they would believe that Christ is the true Messiah that they have been waiting for. Did they think that? Most likely. But was that good? No. In the previous chapter, 8.32, Peter had the audacity to rebuke Jesus for saying he would suffer and die. Did Peter think he was setting his mind on the things of God in chapter 8, verse 33, by trying to look for ways for Jesus not to die? The disciples missed a very important messianic work. The Messiah must suffer first. He cannot be the Messiah if he did not suffer. And Jesus said in verses 12 to 13, and probably one of the most mind-boggling two verses, he said in verses 12 to 13, and he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things, and how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Mark here was quoting from the book of Malachi. And John the Baptist and his ministry of preparing the way of the Messiah fulfilled Malachi's prophecy. And the disciples understood this as it was described in the Matthew account of Transfiguration, chapter 17, verse 13. It says, Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Right? So we see here a wonderful typology, a shadow and fulfillment. And this is really an interesting pericope. Jesus was speaking about Elijah, the first Elijah. But he was also speaking about John the Baptist. Let's call him second Elijah. But there is more. He was speaking of himself as the true and better Elijah who shall come to restore all things. Now, to give you an illustration, in the Philippines, we have mountains everywhere, right? And uh, we, we drove around in the Midwest. We went to Des Moines, and it's just flat, right? Hay, corn, it's just flat lands. It was a six-hour drive with just corn, soy, and hay. 300 miles. Now, the longest mountain in the Philippines extends for approximately 540 miles. We can see it from our house, literally. And here's the thing. From afar, it looks like one long mountain, right? One dimensional. 
But as you go closer, you realize it's not just one mountain. I did a mission trip to a tribal group at the end of that mountain range in 2011, and it took us 24 hours just climbing up and down one mountain after another and crossing rivers and streams of water through every valley. In the Bible, the history of God's redemptive plan also has its mountain ranges, if you will. The prophecy of Malachi about Elijah points to John the Baptist, yes. But Jesus is the true and better fulfillment. Because Jesus is the true and better Elijah who shall restore all things. The first Elijah did not die, right? And was brought up into glory. The second Elijah, John the Baptist, was treated with contempt and killed, according to our text. And the true and better Elijah, Jesus, will suffer and die, but will be brought up in glory. Brought out of the dead into glory. The first and second Elijah look forward to the true and better Elijah, who is Jesus Christ, who shall restore all things, and who shall be the true and better prophet, who shall come in glory with God's ultimate judgment to all the living and the dead. Jesus is the true and better prophet, who not only bears the words of the Father, but who himself is the message of the Father. And the message was, was clear. Christ shall restore and make all things glorious in him, through him, and for him. Romans chapter 11, verse 36. But he must suffer first. And that is what the disciples missed. The Messiah is not the Messiah if he does not suffer first. Beloved congregation, exaltation is preceded by humiliation. And that is the gospel of Christ. And that also sets a pattern for the Christian life. We share in the sufferings of Christ in order that we may be glorified with him. And it is only fitting that we live and have our being to his glory and for the sake of the gospel, even if that means we must suffer, right? But consider the disciples, Peter, James, and John. We know that there, though there was ignorance, unbelief, and doubt in the hearts and minds of Peter, James, and John, Jesus was gracious to them. If you look at the book of Mark, there are a lot of passages that speaks about the disciples' unbelief. Fascinating, in chapter 4, verse 40, Jesus asked, Have you still no faith? Chapter 6, verse 6 even says, And he marveled because of their unbelief. Chapter 6, verse 52 says, For they did not understand, but their hearts were hardened. And chapter 8, verse 1, Jesus said to them, Do you not yet understand? Brothers and sisters, our hearts are hardened by unbelief. Our hearts are hardened by our own wisdom. Our hands are paralyzed by our own doubts. But Jesus is gracious to us. He is gracious to us in our shortcomings, our unbelief, our ignorance and doubts. And so let us call upon God and acknowledge that in our weaknesses, Jesus is our strength. 
In our foolishness, Jesus is our wisdom. And in our shortcomings, Jesus is faithful. And it's interesting how we know that God mightily used Peter, James, and John after the resurrection of Christ. From their ignorance, unbelief, and immaturity to their radical commitment to the gospel ministry, even through their martyrdoms. Like their Savior, they suffered and died for the sake of the gospel. Beloved, this transfiguration look forward to Christ's glorious resurrection. And Christ's resurrection changed the disciples powerfully. We confess the same resurrected Christ. And so let us go like the disciples and proclaim Jesus, the Christ, the beloved Son of God. Even if that means we will be rejected or laughed at and be persecuted. Let us be faithful to the work of the gospel. Let us look to him, listen to him, and live for him. Jesus restores all things. Run to him. If you are here this evening and you think that you are too broken to get fixed, you are not. If you think your marriage or your wayward kids are out of God's reach for restoration, They are not. The same grace that overcame the disciples' weaknesses and shortcomings is the same grace that saves and the same grace that keeps us. Look to him, run to him, and pray, Lord, help me and help my unbelief. If you are here tonight and you know in your heart of hearts that you love God and want to honor him in your life, in your family and vocations, but you do not know how, listen to Jesus. Receive the preaching of God's word and respond accordingly. Talk to your elders. Ask wisdom from them. And if you are here tonight and and you know that what you profess with your mouth is inconsistent with how you live your life right now, repent of your sins and run to Jesus. He wants to forgive you and restore you. Repent of your unbelief. Repent of that habitual and secret sins that drag you away from your Christ. Run away from those things that drain the life in you and run to Christ. He is the city of refuge. And to the congregation, to look and listen to Jesus and live for him is not and will never be accomplished outside of the local church. It cannot be accomplished outside of the community of God's covenant people. To look, listen, and live for Christ is not a solo mission. It is a church enterprise. And so let us help one another to continually believe that Jesus is Christ so that we can behold him supreme over all. Let's pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, may you help us and help our unbelief. Help us to fix our eyes on your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, and behold him supreme in and through our lives. May you help us to listen to your word. Listen to your word. 
and may you help us to live and have our being for your glory and for the sake of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Stand with me and sing with me a hymn of adoration. Take my life and let it be. Trinity Psalter Hymnal 538. sing the doxology.
blessing through His Word. Hear now God's Word. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.